Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to pause in an otherwise busy and hectic season and simply concentrate on what you have done. We sing the song, Jesus loves me this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But may we never forget that you are the one that sent the Son. So thank you for loving us. We pray, God, that you would be pleased to illumine your word this morning by your spirit, that you would connect with each of us and convey your truth, your wisdom, so that we would be changed. We pray this, Father, the only way we can, by the power of your Holy Spirit, and in the name of Jesus. Amen. You might find this hard to believe, but occasionally preachers find difficulty uh, finding just the right introductory material. You might think, what? No, you guys are never out of words. That part's true. But trying to make an introduction actually fit is sometimes delicate. Sometimes it's dicey. And so the fail-safe go-to frequently is movies. Now, movies used to be super easy to use as introductory illustration material because everybody essentially went to the same movies. You had one or two movie theaters. Netflix, what is that? And so everyone was watching the same movies. Nowadays, see, you become a certain age, you get to say things like, nowadays and back in my day, well, there are so many different categories of movie and genre and different platforms and locations where you can go and get your entertainment that it's hard to use uh, the same movie references. And so let me just say then, let me make it more broad. I want to talk about the importance of the movie sequel. Now, the stuff of sequels is often the stuff of very hot debate. Which is better, the sequel or the original? Sometimes they'll make a sequel, and it's not so good. I, I, I will be very, very dogmatic about this. And when I tell you that Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure 2 wasn't, just left so much out. And, and Dude, Where's My Car 2 never even made it into production. It's really, it's really sad. The Godfather 1 was great. Godfather 2 was even greater. Some of you are going, what is that? I've never even heard of such cinema. It's okay. Let me help. Star Wars 4, A New Hope was great. Ah, but The Empire Strikes Back was even greater. Let me appeal to some of you nerds in the room. Fellowship of the Ring and the Lord of Rings trilogy was great, but The Return of the King was even better. What we begin to find out in the movie industry is sometimes a movie will do well and someone will say, Yahtzee, I like money, let's make another movie. And it usually tanks. The best sequels are always the ones in which a sequel was already always in the works. Now, why are we talking about sequels at the beginning of the Advent season? Because it matters for you and for me and our individual walking around lives in the 21st century. You and I are existing in a sequel, and it's better. I've had the opportunity as a pastor, to pause through the holiday season and just get still and to be sort of silent, which is very unusual for me, and to just pray and listen. And as I thought about what do the people of the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church, what do the people of the center of the city of Tyler, Texas, what, what would you give God? Not for me, I have nothing, but what God would you give? And the answer came back in this sort of repetitive refrain, encouragement. Encouragement. As I listen to people, as I talk to people all over our community, our campus, our congregation, there's so much discouragement. There's been so many things that have come at people that they're just beginning to lose their light. 
So my prayer is that we can somehow partner with what the Spirit of God undoubtedly wants to do in each of our lives and to bring you encouragement. Your enemy and the world system and your flesh are relentlessly pursuing your discouragement. But what if you and I could together fall in love with Scripture all over again and see how it really is telling us the story, the greatest story ever told. See, Christ has come. Christ will come again. The church has been saying that creedily for 2,000 years and for good reason because it's true and it's because it's truth and we have to stand on that and believe that Christ has come. That's first advent. Christ will come again. That's second advent. But how are we to live? What are we to do in between? For that, I have some very good news. It's the gospel. It's our big idea for the morning and it goes like this. God is with us. Christ has come, God is with us, Christ will come again. Now, if we maintain that front of mind and top of soul, that gives us the clarity and the wisdom and the strength and the zeal and the vigor to live on Tuesday morning the same that we do on Saturday evening. Christ has come, God is with us, Christ will come again. Now, spoiler alert, I do want you to come back, but I'm just gonna tell you, the big idea for the rest of the Advent sermon series all through the month of December is also going to be God is with us. That's because our sermon series is called Experiencing Emmanuel. Emmanuel, that wonderful Hebrew word that literally means the with us God. We get that from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. He is the with us God, not some distant, distracted, disappointed deity. Oh no, he is the with us God. It's right there in his name. So we're going to talk about different characters in the gospel accounts, how they experienced Emmanuel, how did they receive, what did they believe about this Jesus. And I hope and pray it will be encouraging to each of us. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 2. Now I'm going to do these in a little bit out of order, but there's a reason for that. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to invite you to go to verse 13. We'll go from 13 to 23. Here in a couple weeks, we'll reverse course and we'll tackle the first half of the chapter. But this morning, I want us to tackle this second half of Matthew 2 because it's probably, almost certainly, the least preached passage at Christmas ever. So I wanted to go ahead and tackle this one and set the stage accordingly. It's not a popular passage. It's horrible, as a matter of fact. But we're going to be dealing with a guy named Herod the Great. Let me tell you what's going on. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now, if that's how you're described, you're the guy that's looking for a kid to kill. Danger, danger. This is not a nice man. What's going on? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Why? Because he had to be. Because way back, the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, little bitty Bethlehem and Pephra, small are you among Judah. From you will come one who is ancient and strong. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, born of Mary in 
Bethlehem in Judea, the rugged hill country, only about five miles away from Jerusalem, where Herod is king. I want us to focus our time in this morning on Herod, this person. He is what you would think of in antiquity when you thought of a king, except he's the king of the Jews, except that he shouldn't be. Herod was, well, the enemy of Israel in just about every way you can imagine. His father, named Antipater, his father was an Edomite, you know, like as in the descendants of Esau. The descendants of Esau never had a great sibling relationship with the people of Israel. Herod's mother was an Arabian princess named Cyprus, an Ishmaelite. So just for those of you keeping score at home, Herod's mother is an Arabian. His father is an Edomite. Both of those peoples have hated Israel since their inception. And their son is now the king of Israel, not even Jewish. And the Jewish people hate him, except that he's pretty good at making money. He's pretty profitable. He's pretty ingenious at his building. If you thought about what would a king do, he would be a builder. He built four massive, incredible structures that are his fortresses. The Herodium, he built Fortress Machaerus, he built Caesarea by the sea, and of course the temple project of Temple Mount, absolutely massive. But he was cray cray potamus. That's a Greek expression. It means he was crazy, all right? He comes to power because his father supported the installation of a man named John Hyrcanus to be the high priest. Rome went along with it. Herod said, Yahtzee, that's my chance. And so he marries John Hyrcanus, the high priest. He marries that guy's daughter. And then he kills that high priest named John Hyrcanus. And then he kills the wife too. And then he has both of their sons strangled. And then he murders some mother of his wives and he murders some mother of his sons. He was a very bad, no good person. When Herod finally died, he rounded up all the rabbis of the central hill country and had them all put to death so that the nation would be mourning and everyone would seem that they were mourning for Herod. This guy was, as my dad would say, a bad motor scooter, all right? He's the king. So how is he going to receive? How is he going to deal with the arrival of Jesus? Well, Again, chapter 2, verse 13 opens up like this. Now, when they had departed. So, come back in a couple weeks. They are these three wise men who have come from the east, and they've brought a trove of treasure, which is going to be providential and handy for what's about to happen. They brought all these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Behold, an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord, because the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is always a pre-incarnate Christ. This is an angel of the Lord, presumably Gabriel, the messenger of God. Joseph will actually end up getting four angelic visitations, four visions of instruction directly from God. He appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Wait, wait, wait. Any Bible reader knows that Egypt is the place of slavery, bondage, sin, and death. You should never want to go back to Egypt. Well, we have to understand, Egypt at this time is not the same Egypt as the pharaohs. Egypt at this time has a community of Jewish people living in it that's at least a million strong, historian Philo and Josephus tells us. There were a lot of refuge and asylum seekers. Egypt has all the infrastructure of Rome because Rome is running Egypt. Egypt is only about 70 miles from Bethlehem. So this angel is very specific. It's fascinating to me that angels and, of course, God himself, very familiar with our geography and place names, very particular, very precise. Go to Egypt. Why? And remain there until I tell you why. Because Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
And not surprisingly, Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. That's all you get. Instant hearing, instant obedience. He's in Bethlehem. He's not actually supposed to be there this long. Jesus is probably about two years old by this point, probably a toddler. His home, Joseph's home, is actually back up in the Galilee in the hill country in a little place called Nazareth. But now the angel says, you're not going home either. Keep hooking them down south, and they go all the way down to Egypt. Then Matthew's going to do what Matthew's going to do. Three separate times, Matthew's going to do biblical theology. (sighs) No, it's the Advent season. Don't tune out. This is to encourage us to fall more in love with Scripture, to see what God's doing, that he's prepared us for the sequel, and the sequel's even better. Remain there, it says in verse 15, and remain there until the death of Herod. This, Matthew says, was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And so Matthew starts to do what Matthew does. He's an apostle, he's a disciple. He takes scripture and he says, let me explain something to you. This is that. It's a Hebrew literary form called Pesher, where you look at something in the Old Testament and say, ah, what's happening now? This is the grand fulfillment. That was the shadow. This is the substance. That was the foretaste. This is the the firm foundation. This is the thing. In the book of Hosea, some 750 years, 750 years after the Exodus, Israel has fallen back into sin and slavery and bondage, but this time of their own making. In the land God had given them, they have become idolatrous and debauched. And yet God says, I love them. And he says in Hosea chapter 11, verse one, out of Egypt, I called my son. He thinks of the people, the nation of Israel as his offspring, as his own child that he loves desperately. Matthew's saying, don't you see? This happened with Jesus going to Egypt. Yes, Herod had plans. God superintended them to fulfill what was happening. You see, God's been planning this sequel, Exodus 2, we might say, from eternity past. And he is sovereign, and he is good, and he is gracious. And so Matthew's going, you guys, don't you see? This is the sequel to the Exodus. Israel, Jesus, is going to go down into Egypt, and he's going to have to wait there until Herod dies. That's the first of three biblical theologies that Matthew's going to give us. Then verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. Uh, whoa, that went dark in a hurry. It's like I said, this is not usually the passage we hear preached in the Christmas season. If you've got a bunch of this commemorated on your Jesse tree or your Christmas tree, stop that, that's weird. This was horrible, an absolute atrocity. He went and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So Herod says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You were supposed to come back to me, wise men. He figures out that they've departed, but he now knows that the birthplace was Bethlehem. And so he says, I don't know how to find the one. I'll just kill all of them. Now, let me be super clear on this. Bethlehem at that time probably had between 500 and 1,000 residents. So please understand, one child killed for this is way too many. But it's not like there was hundreds and thousands of them killed. Probably between 12 and 15 male children of that age would have been killed, which is awful, which is horrible, which is very bad, make no mistake. But we're talking about 12 to 15 people. And Herod thinks he's done this. So how is Herod 
the king experiencing God with us, utter rejection, utter fury, utter violence that is splattering out and affecting other people. I know people like that who respond with that same sort of vitriol and violence when confronted with Christ. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Matthew is going to do biblical theology again. This is marvelous. This is complex. This is complicated. Stick with me. It says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. What's going on? Matthew is quoting Jeremiah, who is quoting Genesis. I want you to be encouraged all over again that this Jesus that you believe, this Jesus that you receive, this Jesus that you call upon and claim periodically is truth. That the Bible is one great grand story preparing us for and pointing us to Jesus. Way back in the book of Genesis, at the very beginning of our Bible, there's a man named Abraham, and he has a son named Isaac. And Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob works for 14 years to marry a girl named Rachel, and she made your teeth itch. This Rachel was, wow, she was in fuego. And she has many children with Jacob, and she's widely regarded and thought of as the mother of Israel. One day, as they're traveling along the road, Rachel goes into severe pain childbirth. And she gives birth to a son that she names the son of my sorrow. And Jacob says, we'll not have any of that. We'll name him the son of my right hand. That son is Benjamin, a pointer to Christ because he's born in Bethlehem. Jacob buries Rachel right there in Bethlehem and sets up a column to commemorate her death. About a thousand years later, a thousand years later, Jeremiah is a prophet ministering in the southern kingdom, and Babylon comes through and through three successive exiles, destroys, obliterates, and annihilates the southern kingdoms and carries them off. And Jeremiah quotes back to Rachel, who was weeping and moaning in childbirth when she dies, and he says, this is happening. What is Jeremiah talking about in Jeremiah 31? The first place you get taken as you leave Jerusalem to head to Babylon, as you start walking, you go right past Ramah and Bethlehem. And so all the mothers were weeping because their children are being killed or taken off to exile in Babylon. And then Matthew, 600 years later, says, this is the sequel, part three, but Matthew's doing brilliant biblical theology because he assumes and expects that we as Jewish readers, because he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience, has read the rest of Jeremiah 31. And this is where it gets thick, but I want you to hear this and be encouraged. He quotes this horrible passage from Jeremiah that's referring back to Genesis to explain this horrible thing that happened with these children being slaughtered by Herod in Bethlehem. By the way, there's no other extra biblical record of these children being killed. No other historian records this because it wouldn't even been a blip on Herod's resume of brutality. He killed so many hundreds and hundreds of people, his own officers, his wives, his children. This would not have even registered. What is Matthew doing? He knows that the rest of Jeremiah 31 goes on to talk about, yes, the children of Rachel weeping, the mothers weeping because their children are no more, but the Lord will bring them back and he will produce hope and he will produce encouragement and he will produce life and vitality. He will restore them in the land and he will give them bounty and he will give them blessing. Matthew is saying, 
this is that. In a sense, you thought that the exile into Babylon was over after 70 years? It wasn't. It wasn't. Oh, they came back physically, but spiritually were still bereft. So much so that the prophets come and they decry the false worship and then God goes silent for 400 years. The exile wasn't really over. Oh, they said the right things, but there was no life. There was no vitality. There was no presence. There was no proximity with God. Matthew's saying, oh, do you see the sequel? Exodus part two. And the return of the exile, part two. This time it's real. The one who has been brought out is actually going to bring life and bounty and blessing and prosperity and plenty. Now, that's a complicated biblical theology, but I want you to understand what Matthew is saying when he says Christ has come, and we say Christ will come again. But let's keep reading. Third section, verse 19. But when Herod died, and we know when Herod died, he died about 4 B.C., Now, I don't want to wreck all of your calendars, but that means that Jesus was probably born about 6 B.C. It's okay. It's no problem. Jesus is probably born about 6 B.C. We know that Herod dies in 4 B.C. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Now, you and I are supposed to read that and go, wait, wait, whoa, whoa. This sounds just like Exodus 4. Rise, take the people, and depart to Israel, because those who seek you are dead. Except this time, there will be no grumbling, no trying to throw stones at the leader. This time, Israel will leave Egypt obediently and with great fervor. Verse 21, and he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Just did exactly what he was told to do. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So he's on his way back to Bethlehem where he's going to settle. He would prefer Bethlehem. It's a Jewish community close to Jerusalem, near to where the temple is. But dun, dun, dun out of the frying pan and into the fire. One of the sons of Herod that survived was this guy named Archelaus. And he was worse than his daddy. He killed a whole lot more people and was completely unstable, probably mentally insane from all the incestuous relationships that had produced him. And so he's like, I don't really want to be that close. I know what his dad has done. And an angel comes to him and says, sure enough, hook him back up north to Nazareth. Nazareth, it's so gross, you can't even imagine. Nazareth, it's the backwater. It's like the Texas panhandle in summer. It's In fact, later on in John chapter 1, verse 46, Nathaniel, one of the disciples, is going to hear that Messiah has come. We found him, come and see. Well, where is he? And they all go, it's, 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 would you just, just come see? And they go, where is he? He's in Nazareth. Nathaniel's like, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like, wait a minute, Messiah's from Borger or Pampa? I don't think so. Like, he's just getting, Yes, he goes back to Nazareth, which was at that time a primarily Gentile region. In fact, there was a Roman garrison that was stationed there, so it was rough. It wasn't really a great family environment, but this is where Joseph has to take his family, the holy family, all the way up to the north into the Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called 
a Nazarene. Now, this is delicate and this is dicey. For the third time, Matthew is going to do biblical theology and explain how this, the coming of Christ, is that. The problem is, or the challenge is, there is no Old Testament text that says Jesus must be called a Nazarene. So what's going on? Well, Matthew's very clear how he says this. The prophets, just in general, what they were all referring to, what they were all pointing to and preparing for. You've got Isaiah 53 that says he will come lowly and he will be despised by many. You've got Psalm 22 that says he was lowly and rejected. Psalm, uh, sorry, Isaiah 11 that says he will be Netzer. Netzer was the Hebrew term for a young olive shoot that comes out of a dying olive tree that brings new life. He will be Netzer. And so he moves to the town that is named appropriately Netzeret, the Nazarenes. Jesus has been planned as the sequel to Israel all along. He's not, God is, God is not, Matthew saying, God is not simply going, oh gosh, that first thing in the Old Testament didn't work out too well. Now what I'm going to do, oh no, Matthew says, this sequel has been planned all along. So this first Sunday in Advent, how do we apply this strange opening text with Herod and the killing of children? Yay, Merry Christmas. How do we apply it to our lives, however, and actually come away encouraged? Let me give you a few quick summary principles, just four. Number one goes like this. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. This is the theme and the thrust of all of Matthew's gospel. We have to remember why Matthew writes what he does and doesn't include what he doesn't. He's writing to a primarily Jewish audience to say that Jesus is the rightful king, the king of Israel, which means he's a sovereign, which means he demands fealty, loyalty, and obedience, and he's worthy of it. Mark is sitting in Rome writing to Romans, and he wants to demonstrate that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He is noble. He is honorable, willing to lay down his life for his friends. Luke is a Greek, writing to a Greek and Gentile audience to say that Jesus, oh, he is the highest form of creation, which is man. And by the way, he's also creator. Jesus is the man. John's gospel is the most broad, writing to a universal audience to say that God, or that Jesus is divine. He is the very son of God. But Matthew's trying to convey that this Jesus is the king. Matthew's writing during a time when, on the one hand, you have Herod, bad king. On the other hand, you have Caesar, bad king. And if you're a Jew, what are you to do? Go to Egypt or recognize that the sequel has come. Exodus 2.0 has happened. Jesus is the fulfillment and the hopes and longings that, of everything in the Old Testament. Matthew wants his readers to understand, and therefore us as well, that God is with us. Now, for those of you that have been coming to Bethel for a while, you know that we studied the book of Joshua, the first 10 chapters, all this fall semester. That Joshua, that God is our salvation. It's a great pivot point for us to change course and say, let's talk about the ultimate Joshua, who is our salvation, Yeshua, Jesus, and he is with us. The king that Israel never really had and they always desperately wanted and needed had actually come, but he isn't what anybody expected. He actually came to be present among and with his people in a way that no God ever had and not any king ever had. The hands of this king are healing hands. He is the king, but good news, he's also good and he loves you. Second point goes like this. Jesus is the catalyst. Jesus brings the fight. 
I know at the Advent season, we like to celebrate cute little 7.2 pound pink baby Jesus. But he says himself, he came with a sword to divide. Jesus is the catalyst. Nobody who encounters Christ in the gospels remains ambivalent or agnostic. Nobody. I get it. In our day and age, in the 21st century, it's become popular to say, well, whatever you want to say about Jesus, that's fine for you. I'll do it. One of the things that if you really get into and study and evaluate and examine Jesus, you cannot, without crucifying the intellect, simply go, meh, and walk away. This Jesus is the catalyst. He's the king. He is the suffering servant. He is the man. He is God. Now, if that's true, and he is... If that's true, then by definition, you simply can't ignore him. In fact, through history, people have either rejected him violently and tried to stamp him out along with those who are his, or they fall in reverence. The remainder of the population maintains ambivalence because of a refusal to actually consider this Jesus and the claims about him. And you might say, hey, listen, every time I mention Jesus, people get mad at me and tell me to shut up. Okay, that might be because of you, pumpkin. That might be because of Jesus. I don't know. But if everyone always just disdains you, perhaps you're presenting it wrongly. But when you present Jesus as the object of your loyalty, your affection, your attention, your reverence, your worship, not in some condemning behavior stick, then people are catalyzed. They have to either accept and acknowledge or investigate further or walk away completely rejecting C.S. Lewis famously said, Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or Lord. And there's no room for anything else. The scriptures, the Lord God himself, and hopefully his church will not allow you or anyone or myself to simply procrastinate our belief about Jesus. And so we say this every week. Come, 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 look at Jesus. Promise you, if you really get into Jesus, not some cultural idea or misunderstanding about Jesus, but if you come and truly examine what the scriptures, what the spirit reveals, what the people proclaim, you must react to Jesus. He is the catalyst. Third point, maybe a bit strange, but it goes like this. Jesus is the nation. I know this doesn't get talked about a whole lot, but at this Advent season, I want to really make a big deal about it. Jesus is true Israel. Now, this could be a whole series of sermons, but for now, let me just say it briefly. Jesus himself is true Israel. He is God's own son from Exodus 4.22, Hosea 11.1. He's brought up out of Egypt. Now, I mentioned earlier the book of Hosea and how God calls Israel his own son, but in Hosea, we read even more that it is helpful here. To make the point that God wants to make about how rebellious and debauched Israel has become as a people, Hosea has to marry a woman named Gomer, and he has to have two children with her. The first, he names No Mercy. Terrible name for a kid. Lo Ami, don't do that. The second, he names Not My People. Terrible name, but it actually happened. And then we get the New Testament. And the sequel comes along, and it's 1 Peter, and he says, don't you understand, those of you who are outside, you were formerly not my people, God says. You were formerly not receiving mercy, but Christ has come. And now you have received mercy, he says. Now you are his people. You are in the commonwealth of Israel because it's not a people, it's a person, don't you see? You were not the potential recipient of mercy 
You were outside the confines of the covenant, uh, of the messianic community. But because of Christ, you who were far off are now in. Paul says it even more directly in Romans 2, 28, 29, when he boldly proclaims that a true Jew is actually a Christian. I know that's unpopular. Careful, careful. I'm not saying anything political. I'm quoting Paul in Romans. Read it. He's got a point because Jesus is true Israel, and we who are in Christ are God's covenant community. We are his messianic people. What a gift to be reminded of at advent of our citizenship, which is in heaven. God is with us. Final point goes like this, very predictably. Jesus is the word. I want us to see that Jesus is the word of God made flesh. In John 6, he calls himself Dabar Yahweh, the very word of God. The son of God is fully God and fully man. The word of God is fully God, inspired by him, and fully man, written by human authors. And all of this is beautifully and marvelously bound up together in the person of of Christ. I hope and I pray that for you and your household and community of friends, this Advent Christmas season, this season of celebrating the birth of Christ, that it would be a time when you consider the sequel that is our Lord and Savior and how much he loves you and is for you and has done so much to make himself known that God is with us. My prayer for all of us this Advent season is that we would find the wisdom Simply be still and know that he is God and that he is with us. Peace on earth and goodwill to men and women. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time, this opportunity to get in to see how different people experienced your son, Emmanuel. We do thank you, God, that you, by your spirit, through your son, are with us. And yet, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, that perhaps knows some things about you, would you continue to lead them, to draw them irresistibly to yourself by your spirit, that they would agree and confess and be persuaded that your son Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. For the rest of us, Father, who have perhaps become suffocated by stress and strain, would you encourage us that this has been your plan all along, that these things are theological and redemptive history. They happened, and we can trust that and live our lives persuaded. So would you encourage us? Would you find opportunities, Father, to unexpectedly bless these, your people, not because they deserve it, but because you are good and you are for us and you love us. So we pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.